Class, an exclusive review of Billboard's Top 10 on the Pop Soul Country and Album Charts for the week ending February 1st, 1981. Now, here's Casey Kasem. Hello again, and welcome to America's Top 10. Thank you very much for listening. We're, we're having our own little 2016 album series is what we're calling it. We've been calling it that for seven or eight weeks now, and today is the big guy. Today is the one that everybody looks forward to. Uh, so we're, we're, we're counting down the albums, counting up the albums, however you want to say it. Uh, no album left behind is how I keep thinking about this sort of thing. Let's talk about everything. I think that could be Rushcast's sort of... Uh, um, catchphrase, you know, that's our that's our big slogan is no album left behind. Let's talk about the weird ones, you know? It's it's funny, we're talking about moving pictures today and we don't we, we often like it might be the it's the most popular album in a way, but it's probably the least popular on my show because I, I started the show to talk about those albums that don't get a lot of love. So here we are now, and we're going to devote a whole episode to moving pictures. Um, and I know that's a big chunk of our audience who wants to hear us talk about moving pictures for 40 minutes or an hour or whatever. We're going to do that today. Today I have a really cool guest, one of my favorite guests that's been on the show, who was on an older episode. He got a whole episode to himself because he donated when we, we needed some money to keep Rushcast alive. So please welcome Ron Reed back to the show. How you doing, Ron? Hey, I'm fantastic, Jay, and really cool and one of your favorite. Man, what a great introduction. <laughs> you, I need to donate more frequently. No, you're great. It's um a little intimidating hearing your voice because you have an awesome radio voice. <laughs> it's nice no, and it's deep. No. It's you you enunciate. It's very, very good. I like it. Well, thanks. I, I don't I say that like it's something you practiced. Like, good job. You put I in a lot of work. I don't. Yeah, I understand. Well, no, no practice. But, you know, we just came out of a medley that I put together. And my apologies to your listeners for having to endure that medley of that's medley of all of what was the hits or were the hits 
1981. Everything that went to number one is a part of that medley. So people that are hmm, older than 40, maybe 43, something, whatever, but older than that, up to my age, um, they most definitely remember those songs and probably cringe. (laughs) I put together that medley because Moving Pictures, which is by far my favorite album, not just my favorite Rush album, but absolutely my favorite album, um, they kind of were leaning toward on their own, you know, of, of their own admission, something more commercial, something more palatable, even something that might even sell more through, you start to feel it in permanent waves, but then you really start to hear it through the shorter songs, the songs that hook into a rhythm and hang with that rhythm uh, more so than the previous releases. It's a lot more commercial. However, when you compare any song from Moving Pictures to any of those hits, it's not at all selling out. It's not at all going to you know Olivia Newton-John or to any of those other artists that were you know featured in that horrible medley. So, so Ron puts together this this medley and sends it to me completely unprovoked. I, I didn't ask him to do that. I didn't suggest he bring something to me. He just said, "Hey, I made this thing. Do you want to use it?" And what a cool idea! It's cool in two ways because. Obviously, if like you said, you're you're forty plus years old, that I think that's a big reminder of these t- these songs that, according to you, were played you know beaten to death on the radio. They were. Um, they were. I bet that's a nice reminder for older listeners who go, "Oh yeah, I remember this song. I remember how much I hated it." <laughs> um, yes, definitely. But for the people younger, and I have a lot of listeners that are my age or even younger. I have teenagers that listen to the show. It's cool for us to to compare. I can compare Tom Sawyer to, oh, this was the same time as Tom Sawyer. This was on the same playing field as Tom Sawyer for somehow, you know. Uh, it's a really nice contrast for someone. And you you asked me before we started recording, have you ever heard these tracks? Uh, maybe, maybe one or two I've heard ever, you know, like, yeah. and that it seemed like that was weird for you, but it's just, you know, I'm, I've been, it been exposed. to me. Yeah, it's incredible to me because these songs were played to death. I mean, relentlessly. And um, the videos for many of the songs were played to death. Oh, yeah. This so. was, MTV was huge. 80, 81, right? Absolutely. I mean, yep. and the only, it's funny because like, some... the only thing I know about MTV's history, the only thing I gauge it on is that I know Subdivisions was huge and like one of the very first big MTV videos, right? So I always just imagine 80 was kind of the beginning of MTV. Right, exactly, yeah. Now, there are, in the course of that medley, there are a couple of rush tie-ins, very loose, but a couple of a couple of loose tie-ins. One is, it starts off with a song from John Lennon, and the loose tie-in there is that when I read it, I've done a bit of research for, moving, for the Moving Pictures podcast, and a couple of articles I read, Getty speaks of during the mixing of Witch Hunt, he learned that John Lennon was shot. And that's kind of one of those moments when you're my age that everybody knows where they were when they heard the news of John Lennon's assassination. Another tie-in, Olivia Newton-John had a movie, believe it or not, called Xanadu. 
there was sort of this weird, bizarre roller disco movie. Okay. It's very strange, but the title was Xanadu, of all things. And if you Google the Xanadu poster, you know, so Xanadu movie poster, I swear to you, Olivia Newton's John Hare absolutely looks like the owl's wings on Fly By Night. So there's a little tie-in there. Several tie-ins. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yes, exactly. So this is, uh, I want to remind everybody that you're a drummer. And um, I don't have many drummers on the show. Not that they, they aren't listening or that they're not interested in being on the show, but that's just the way it's worked out. Uh, is this a top, I mean, it's got to be, I imagine, top in every category, but is drumming one of the highlights of the album for you? Absolutely, definitely. Um, in fact, it was the drumming on this album that really brought me to Rush because I was already playing drums and had a few drummers that I was really, really, that I really gravitated toward. However, once I heard YYZ and the <laughs> drumming on that, then that really brought me to Rush. And from then, everyone else was, you know, backseat to Neil Peart. Yep. Uh, I want to just take two steps backward uh, when you talked about these songs sort of while they're more poppy on this album and they're more a little more mainstream being played with those top 40 hits i go back to something my dad always talks about since we'd been listening to rush and that's that you know anyone who complains about popular tunes or synth tunes or songs that are too far removed from what Cygnus was or what 2112 was uh, he always says the same thing. My dad goes, it's still Rush. Like, even though Vital Signs doesn't, isn't progressive or Limelight is more verse, chorus, verse, chorus, standard form, it's still Rush. And people like my dad would argue that for everything on Hold Your Fire as well, everything on Presto, right. any album that, are, that is normally kind of pushed aside because it's different. He says it's still Rush though, and that's a really nice, a really like uh, quick to the point sort of theory, you know, or, or way to say that it's still Rush, you know, yeah. regardless of what the form is or how long the song is. Absolutely. In fact, I have a couple of uh, quotes from Getty, um, Neil, and Alex that kind of speak to exactly what your dad says and what you're saying. That is Getty's take on moving pictures, a just really quick quote, that it was a big evolution for the band. We were finally able to do what we'd been trying to do for the three albums previously. We had greater abilities, and it all came together on that one album. That's Getty. Now, Neil, his input's a little more succinct. Um, they were looking to play songs that were designed to play live, but yet still be very challenging. Alex typical Alex form, I have him as saying, blah, 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 and F you puppet. <laughs> that is my favorite line. <laughs> that is uh, the F you puppet thing from R40 had me dying. And the people I was with, yeah. I'm like, did you hear what he said? They're like, yeah. I'm like, what's the, what's the deal? I, I just thought it was so well delivered <laughs> comedically. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> this is, is definitely nuts. the, you the comedic. He's the comedic force behind the band for sure. <laughs> well, you said so your quote said that they were uh 
still fun to play live. And, you know, we know that they try to set their songs up to be performable live, you know. Um, right. I know that they, and this was evident on Permanent Waves, among older stuff, they try not, they try to put live endings on their records, on on the studio recordings. I think the best example of that that we have, or maybe ever, is Limelight. Is this completely orchestral and just immensely orchestrated uh, ending on this beautiful tune that could have very well faded out, you know? Absolutely, yeah. In fact, um, last time I was on Rushcast, I had a list of Neil's top ten, and the ending of Limelight was among those top ten. Yeah. Now, I also feel that Limelight is arguably, perhaps, maybe, Neil's most autobiographical song, or autobiographical song. So it's interesting to hear something that is that thinly veiled and that's that Neil really is coming from his own point of view as opposed to storytelling of some sort. It's funny that I'm looking at the list and while Limelight is a good example of a nice live ending on a studio recording, the other a lot of the other tracks don't uh mirror that. Like obviously YYZ has a great ending. The camera eye has this absolutely epic earth shattering final chord that rings forever it's sort of in a right. a beatles-esque kind of way where where the last note rings for two minutes um well my yeah my favorite thing about the end of the camera eye is how they have the westminster chimes uh-huh. at the end of that and at the beginning of witch witch hunt they reprise that immediately uh-huh, yes so you hear the actual <laughs> bells and then that's re that's played or mimicked by Neil on like the lock and spiel or, or bells or something. Um, I loved, you know, I can still remember the first time I heard that when I was a kid and I would just listen to that. The whole album, it really, the whole moving pictures album to me, isn't one where I'm just cherry picking a song or two. Mm-hmm. It really is a great record to put on and just listen to the entirety of side a turn it over, listen to the entirety of side B and the way the songs are constructed and delivered very much. You can tell that, that there's a closure to side A and there's a new opening to side B and a new closure. You know, it's just absolutely each side is, is really a nice package. Yeah. And they're, it, their own packages on their own, which is what, what makes yeah, a absolutely. great album. I think, um, in terms Definitely. of setup, uh, yep. let's see. We're, we're so many places to go here. I think I, I'm with you in that there are there are no high points because they're all high points. You know what I mean? Like you were not picking and right. or cherry picking, as you said. Uh, I think that's a nice way to think about it. I want to say that witch hunt. I just want to give witch hunt some love because I always considered it the sort of like the rotten egg of this album. Not that it was ro- rotten in, in any way, or smelled like sulfur but it um i just thought it wasn't up to par with the rest of the album i do think it is now though i think it sits evenly with everything else it's just a very different vibe and i wasn't mature enough to understand that vibe uh i listened to the live version on because i recently acquired this album grace under pressure live 
when it was still pretty fresh, and I listened to it on Snakes. I be- Snakes and Arrows Live, they played it, I think. This right. song live is a completely different beast, and that has opened my well, ears up. Yeah. yeah, I'm really, you know, I've got a couple things about that. Number one, Witch Hunt was a, was a song created, according to all the research that I've done, a song created to not be played live. It was one that they threw sort of the kitchen sink at, and it was sort of a studio piece that they created. In fact, I've got Neil quoted, a quote from Neil on Witch Hunt. The, the percussion ensemble in the second verse was very interesting to do. When we recorded the basic track, I left that section largely blank. And what he's speaking of is that whole little area with, the, with that great, cool cowbell, you know, and all the toms and such. So back at it. Um, left it largely blank and went back to overdub each drum separately. I used different sounds and perspective on each drum to create the dramatic effect of things alternating from being very distant and very near. And also removed the bottom heads of my toms. Hold on, my phone just messed up there. I'll fix it. There we go. Removed the bottom heads of my toms to create a dramatic effect alternating between very distant and near. Removed the bottom heads of my toms on this track to get a more dark and primal sound. So, with that said, the song was never really played the way you hear it until they played it live. And then in that case, they made some slight, slight alterations. But my appreciation of it live is it's extremely cool that Neil's driving that cowbell piece with his left foot and everything else, you know, all the Tom pieces. Mm -hmm. I just love it. I think it's great. Uh, Equally, one thing about the title, Moving Pictures, a couple of the songs, Witch Hunt and Red Barchetta in particular, have an extremely cinematic feel. Yeah, I mean, and I would, I would argue you till I die, Ron, that Red Barchetta even more so. <laughs> like, like yeah. Red Barchetta is the most... I, li- I like how you say that. Cinematic. Tells you a story. Paints a picture. Exactly, right. And Neil was specifically, I read... Neil was specifically going for that angle, uh-huh. looking to create some songs that had that sort of feel in order to encompass the moving pictures theme. Equally, on the front cover of moving pictures, Witch Hunt ties in because they have the Joan of Arc painting All among right. the three paintings. Yep. One of the paintings is Joan of Arc. Hugh Syme, I've got that book, that great book that Art, Hugh Syme released. Yeah. Yes. Yes, so that had some great information in it related to moving pictures, one of which was that that painting of Joan of Arc is actually a photograph that he created, and uh, that was his reason for tying that in. The other piece is that one of the gentlemen, the movers, Uh is his name is Bob King, and he was actually the model for... The twenty one twelve, the you know, the, and and hemispheres. Wow, the most so famous, words, yeah, the, the star man, the most yeah. famous butt cheeks in all of the land. Right, exactly. Well, maybe maybe the hemispheres guys got him beat. Yeah, well, it's the same guy. The hemispheres guy is the same model as <laughs> the star man guy. Right? So. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
Vital Signs is, for whatever reason, like jumped at me when I first started digesting moving pictures. It can't. I in. I bet it was because I was learning bass and thought that is the coolest freaking bass line. Um, and then yeah, when, awesome. for any bass players listening, you know what I'm talking about is when you start playing that line on bass, you see how nicely it lays on the instrument. There's not a lot of like work involved shifting wise. It, it's, it, it all just kind of lays under your fingers, but it, it twists you up. It, it's such a satisfying bass line to play because it's difficult yet tight. And uh, that's probably why I gravitated to it. But I think upon listening to it, you know, more recently, it foreshadows the coming albums so well. And I think that is the sole, not the sole responsibility. One of the few responsibilities of the last song on an album should be to foreshadow what the next couple albums are going to, or at least the next album. And so signals and grace listen to the synthesizers involved on vital signs. And it sounds like grace under pressure. It sounds like the synthesizers in analog kid, uh, you right. could say the same for the camera eye as well, that repeating synthesizer. That, that's the stuff we're going to get for the next few years. Yeah, I totally agree with you on Vital Signs. Um, and another small tidbit about Vital Signs is it is the first Rush song to incorporate electronic percussion. The snare is an electronic snare. And it's the first time that Neil had done that. Interesting, because I, I thought I had... Re- I mean, I'm sure you're right. I totally believe you. But I thought I read recently that Grace was the first... Maybe it was the first electronic kit he had on tour or something like that. Right. Um, because right. on, on yeah, Grace Live, so. on Grace Live, he plays Closer to the Heart completely on an electronic kit, and it sounds really weird. Um, yeah. But I, So this was yeah. almost the first uh, you know, electronic drum that we hear. Right. In other words, yeah, and it's not a complete electronic drum set. Yes. Just some elements electronic. Gotcha. In fact, Vital Signs itself is recorded, and this is another thing I love about moving pictures. Almost every song, especially Vital Signs and Witch Hunt, the drum sound is completely changed from the rest sonically, from the rest of the record. Witch Hunt, in the way that we just talked about previously, where he literally went in and did some interesting things uh, with the with the tone of the drums, etc. But Vital Signs, in a very unique way, where instead of miking the drums, he literally wore what they call a PZM mic. And if you watch the Vital Signs video, you can see sort of this box attached to his chest. <laughs> and that's that's the mic that, that they used for miking the drums. So Vital Signs is recorded, drum-wise, from the drummer's perspective that way where literally the only thing you're hearing with the exception of the electronic snare is Neil's perspective on what the toms and cymbals sound like from the throne. I uh, this is what I love about you Ron is that even on even these these songs that don't get as much love you you throw every, you your pedal to the metal on everything here, you know? I mean I'm I'm sure there well, are people who think Vital Signs is just a top 3 song for them and that for once, they'd like somebody to talk about Vital Signs for more than five seconds before moving on to Limelight, and here you are. <laughs> this well, is- I love it. I love it. And one of the things I love best about the sound of Vital Signs in relation to the drumming is the 
immense difference, and it's demonstrated right off the bat, the immense difference between that tight, couldn't get any tighter snare to the super sub-low bass drum. I mean, it's it's loose, it's super subby, and just the contrast in, in those three notes, two on the snare and one on the bass, it's like, wow, we're going on an awesome ride drum-wise here. Equally, going back to what you said in relation to Getty's bass, I love the unique tone of Getty's bass on this entire record. To me, it really stands forward in the mix because, to me, it's got a certain growl at, at points yeah. and a certain amount of a little extra mid-range that kind of separates it from everything else and makes it really stand out. And as we talked on the previous Rushcast together, I love how Neil and Getty, more than ever prior, they really are in lockstep with one another. So many runs that Neil does on drums, Getty's like, oh, that's nothing. I'm going to do the same thing on bass right with you. And I love that. Those two have always sought that and have always attempted that and have always accomplished it. But in my opinion, never, never as well as on moving pictures. They yeah, were they, just they, they really were dialed it one in. person, definitely. Um, an interesting thing about Vital Signs from a bass player point of view, and even from any listener point of view, is it's a very rare instance at the end of the track where we get a moment of Getty Lee playing a bass guitar solo in the style of a guitar solo. So like Getty has his quote unquote solos where, you know, he stands out a bit or, or he does a, a bunch of uh, fills or he just kind of goes a little crazier than normal. But those aren't, right. those aren't in the style of a guitar solo where everybody chills out and the bass plays a melody. I can't even think right now of another time. It happens at the end of witch hunt, the, the track right before it, um, but I'm thinking in their whole catalog in Witch Hunt, he does it on the record, but live, interestingly, they switch it and they do a guitar solo. Maybe because Getty's oh, doing interesting. I know stuff. exactly the spot you're talking about, though, at the end of Witch Hunt. Yep. Yeah. And that you're right. That is sort of a guitar player's sort of feel. And yeah, I like that. Good. That's good to point out. I and, like that. And I'm a bass player, and I'll say in Witch Hunt, I prefer the guitar solo. Not because, not to discount what Getty's doing, but I think what Alex does at the end of Witch Hunt Live is so Alex Lifeson, and it sounds beautiful. So I prefer that. But, cool. but on Vital Signs, when they do it live, they keep this bass solo, and, and it's just a rare time to hear Getty play like a guitar player, and the rest of the band just shuts up and lets him play the melody. Re- a really right. cool moment. But I think you're right with bass tone. I think this record is unlike any other record hands down, not even just Rush records. Like, there's no other album that has the bass player sounding like this. Now, I don't know all of, like, Iron Maiden stuff. I don't know everything that The Who did. Maybe there's sure. maybe there's something similar, but for, for what I've heard, um, I would say the same about Alex's tone. So... And I have a question coming up for you, Ron. I'm just going to ramble a little bit. I think Permanent yeah. Waves had this sort of el- guitar element to it where it's like, wait a minute, this sounds awesome and it sounds different. Something about this guitar sound is just different than what we've heard on the older Rush records. I think on Moving Pictures, he 
dialed it in even more, Alex, and got an equally unique sort of tone. But like you said, Getty has something we've never heard before. So for you as a drummer, is Neil's sound completely different like the other two guys on this record? Primarily, the the chief difference, Neil-wise, is twofold. Number one, the fact that the whole, and really, I mean, he's, there, there are units. So this isn't uniquely Neil, but the songs don't make as many changes. They are more comfortable to find a rhythm and allow the listener to enjoy that and allow that rhythm to find a groove as opposed to the, the more choppy, you know, the more um, dynamic and the more, hey, let's go from this time signature quickly to this one and then back. Um, you know, let's not get bored with this. Let's keep this moving along and let's keep it. Let's keep the listener wondering, holy smokes, what's coming next? This album, a lot of the songs have a bit more time to breathe. So that's one. And then beyond that, just the, the creative things that he did or that they did in relation to the drum sound. In particular, one thing that I haven't mentioned yet is that almost every major drum run on the record, and I don't know whose genius this was. I guess I'll blame it on Terry Brown. But almost every drum starts in the left ear and ends up on the high toms, ends up in the left ear on the low toms. And it's just in in relation to the stereo production, to my recollection, that had never been done on a Rush album before. And it's done in a really, really amazing way that when you're a little kid and you've got headphones on and you're listening to this and you're a drummer, it's like, wow, this is incredible. I mean, it really feels like you're, you're sitting where Neil sits and you're hearing this from his perspective, which is really cool. Do you think the camera eye is, is, you know, if, if, uh, if I get moving pictures as it comes out and I look at the back and see the camera eye and that it's 10 minutes long or whatever, I'm thinking, oh, so this is how it's going to go from now on. They're going to have a bunch of shorter tracks and then one big one. And I imagine you will. Been a good prediction. You know, yeah, but it, and then we get signals prediction. and we're like, oh, well, I get maybe not. And then Grace, even more, they get shorter. You know, uh, is this like the f- their last sort of hoorah with these old with these long tunes? For well, you, like, you do you think it was, do you, was that? Were they conscious of that? The Camera Eye was the last Rush song more than 10 minutes long, according to everything I've read. And there was a conscious effort to deliver the information in a more succinct manner. And I don't know, really, I really don't know what it was that drove them from the epics to the more succinct. And I used to think that it was more Terry Brown's doing that with his eventual departure that other producers were driving, you know, the, the let's tighten it up. And I believe I could be wrong on this and please correct me. I think signals was Terry's last record with the band. I, yeah, I think so too. I think that's correct. It's either that or, or pictures. Yeah, it's definitely not pictures. I believe strongly that Signals was the last one, I think. And so back whenever I was, you know, a new Rush fan, 
and going to see um, Power Windows Tour and such and loved those epics. There was a there was an odd time for a lot of Rush fans where we really craved the hemispheres and the um, twenty one twelve and Terry Brown and you know just that whole that whole older thing. And it took some time, though we loved the new releases. It took some time for many of us to really love the new releases. It kind of grew on us hmm. the new the newer Rush sound. Especially long about Hold Your Fire. That was a record that took a few listens to really, really enjoy and really find the depth. So you, from your perspective, uh, when this album was released, people didn't jump on it immediately? Is that what you mean? No. Um, well, I think as far as the general public and as far as Rush fans, I think, I think Rush Older Rush fans were still, hey, this is great. You know, we've got a 10-minute piece. We've got all these new great songs. They're getting a little radio airplay. Fantastic. I think for a very short duration, the further they got from that, the more I would hear people say, oh, they need to go back to their roots, you know? So you would start to hear a lot of that. People were still, though, 100% on board, 100%, hey, you know, Teddy, Neil, Alex, they're the best. You know, there was no mass exodus as opposed to other bands that evolve frequently. They will alienate their base Mm -hmm. in order to appeal to the masses. And that didn't happen with Rush. There was no massive alienation. I do think that there was a certain base of Rush fans, though, that were really, it was difficult to make that switch and seeing Terry Brown go, and you really don't know, how much influence did Terry Brown have? And what would have happened had Terry Brown stayed with them? You know? So, it was just nothing mm, earth-shattering, but certainly the changes were evolving. But, going back to that medley at the top of the show, you listen to those songs, believe me, anything from Rush is just savored. (laughs) I wonder, like, I don't want to sit on the camera eye all day, but I wonder if that was the the one that was the hardest for people to swallow when they first heard the record, or if or if immediately they were like, "Oh, this is epic! This is incredible!" Um, because it is no, so I different. I think you're right. I think you're right. I think though that the camera eye, if just speaking for myself, compared to other epics, it's not as it just doesn't have the same like incredible feel and sound of the original epics. Now, interesting note, Camera Eye was the first song written for the record. So it's interesting that the Camera Eye is sort of kind of similar, lengthwise at least, and the multi, the kind of multi feel of it to the older stuff. Whereas Vital Signs was the last song recorded or written and recorded for the album. And that has very much a signals and uh, post, you know, albums, what's to come. Yeah, it's funny because, like, I don't, I'd never thought of the camera eye as being an epic. I, I, I meant epic as in, like, the adjective, but I never, conf- right. I never compared it to those other longer tracks because it doesn't feel like one. Like, 
it doesn't the parts move in and out so fluidly that um and and so predictably that it doesn't feel that proggy to me it, it just feels like a right. a basic aba ABAB or whatever you would call it in the rock world. I'm, I'm speaking like a jazz musician now. Uh, verse, chorus, verse, chorus, just expanded, you know, like more of them. Uh, and interesting to know, I'm always interested in uh, songs they play live or they that they revisit but change the form a bit. And the camera eye was tweaked just a tad when they played it live on, on Time Machine. I said to my dad, I'm like, they're not going to play it note for note. They're not going to play it. It's not going to be the exact length. I'm telling you, they're going to cut something out uh, like they do with Natural Science and other tracks. Um, just change them just a little tiny bit. Uh, so YYZ or YYZ yes. for the Canadian people. Um, right. Speaking of changing them live, there are a couple of big notes for me on when we talk about YYZ and the recording on movie pictures, not necessarily the composition yet. Um, number one, this song sounds so different live, um, which makes the studio recording, which I hear less frequently than live recordings, a treat. It's it's very different. The biggest difference for me is the speed. Like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Dad, my dad, when I'm learning bass, like my dad taught me electric bass growing up and starting to listen to Rush, and I would try to play YYZ, and then there came a time where I could play YYZ, then there came a time where I was playing it in a band with a band and he'd always say, he'd always be like, yeah, but can you play it to the studio version? <laughs> and I'd be like, uh, I don't know. Let me try. Nope. Turns out I can't. <laughs> I'm not that fast yet. It's amazing that they, and they never really revisited that song live at that speed. They just recorded it right. lightning fast. Have you noticed yeah, I that? Wonder- Yes, I wonder, you know, listening to what you're saying, I agree with you, and I wonder if, because YYZ, when first played live, it became the new home for a long duration of the drum solo. So I wonder if it was pulled back slightly just so that they could enjoy the, you know, the um, opportunity to play it, the opportunity, you know, it's a major crowd thriller, and it gives Getty's voice a good rest. But I wonder if also it was pulled back slightly so that as soon as they go into Neil's solo, it's at a palatable pace that he can then do some incredible drum soloing things and then come right back into it. Yes. You're saying maybe it did for many years. Maybe it just saves his chops a little bit before he gets to the, that's a good point. True. True. But I mean, if they were going, you know, at the, at the, um, studio speed and now you break into a drum solo man your drum solo chops have to be unbelievably blazingly fast so i wonder if they did it for that reason for a little bit i don't know merely speculative well one of the big things about this this is something i have you know i've met a lot of geeky rush people like me uh this is something i have literally never had a conversation about and that's this one single note in yyz that happens over and over in the main riff, that riff, there yeah. is a note that's held longer live where like this, there are three notes that happen. The first one's held longer and the second one's held shorter. There's yeah. got to be somebody out there that knows what I'm talking about. Um, and please let me know because I think I'm going crazy sometimes. But I don't think there's well, a live recording. 
What's that? Yeah, drummer might be the wrong person to ask. <laughs> At least this drummer. I don't definitely. think there's a recording live of them playing it like it is on the record. Like since they you. hit, they right. started touring for the album and they changed that part for whatever reason. Those those things are really interesting to me because it's like, well, why was it composed one way and now you clearly think it's better this other way? Um, it's just like right. a nice little sneak peek into the composition process. Uh, well, I, have, I have two YYZ facts that are kind of interesting. Let's hear them. Through my research. One that I learned doing the research and the other that I knew for years. On the liner notes, you'll see Neil credited with playing plywood. Okay. Well, <laughs> the, there's a certain, there's a sort of a, I don't know how to describe it. But during that, yeah, it's no, like a whack. Um, it's a big smack, right? The right? whack, yes, thank you. The whack part, that's plywood. Well, among other things, plywood. So literally, outside of the studio, um, took a sheet of plywood and literally <laughs> smacked it. You know, or like broke it. That's and funny because so there's, that. there's actually an orchestral, yeah. orchestral percussion instrument called a, I think it's called a slapstick. That might not be the right, official right. I know name. What you're talking about. I mean, it's not. Yeah. Pl- maybe yeah. it is plywood. I don't know. Uh, but it's like a big. Pl- it's a skinny plank of wood that's maybe like three inches wide. Um, right. And it's got a hinge screwed into screwed into that plank, and a similar plank on top of that, so that when you like throw it like a baseball, that second plank slaps against the first one. It makes it really. F- I always thought that's what it was, but it's kind of neat to just think of it as a piece of plywood that Neil found outside. <laughs> yeah, when I was a drum teacher, my my teacher used to use one of those on me, or a drum student. My teacher would use one of those on me if I was out of time. So, <laughs> kind of brings back some bad memory. Yeah, I, I imagine. No doubt. Do you have another yeah, YYZ fact? Paddle, though, what you're speaking of is very paddle-like. Did you have another, another fact? YYZ. I do. I have one other fact about YYZ, and this one is blasphemy. Okay, YYZ was nominated for a Grammy <laughs> for Best Rock Instrumental. However, it lost to the police, and I love the police. Sure. However, the song it lost to is horrible. It's a song that mainly it's Andy Summers on guitar, and he's great. But this song is not good. It's called Behind My Camel by the Police from Zenyatta Mandata. <sighs> Google that song. Watch yeah. it on YouTube, whatever. It is not anything compared to the amazing YYZ. Not, so not the, that really not the me police's out. best yep. work. What was it up for? What, what was the award? Best Rock Instrumental. In yeah, 1982. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I and definitely YYZ should have had that. I think that the police were so incredibly popular. Right. That yeah. That oh, yeah. Must have had some sort of. They had much more, so much more of a pop following. I mean, I, like I don't yeah. know what that track, and I do like the police. Um, I love the police. I love Stuart Copeland. I think he's one of my top five. You, you know what's funny? This is completely and utterly unrelated, Ron. But Stuart Copeland is the drummer, correct? Uh, of the police there was a video game that the younger listeners will know that i played growing up for playstation one so it was like late 90s called spyro the dragon and anybody that's 23 to 26 years old will know what spyro the dragon is 
and how awesome it was. But they will also tell you the music was amazing. The music really cool. created these cool. soundscapes that were just absolutely breathtaking for a video game. And that's cool. I researched it literally maybe a couple months ago because I found the whole soundtrack online. And I said, I got I to gotta talk to the person who, I could have just sent him an email, whoever composed this. And right. turns out there's like this really old interview that's really hard to find on YouTube. Uh, it's the drummer for the police was hired. Yeah. Stuart, Stuart Colvin was hired to make this video game music. Um, and I think that is just the coolest thing I've ever heard. Yeah, I am familiar with that because I you know, have been a fan of Stuart for years and years. And he's done a little bit of uh, music, movie scores as well. Wow. So he has like a whole home studio where he does a ton of recording. And in fact, there's even a YouTube video. I can't remember who the other musicians are in there, but all top notch. One of which is Neil Peart. So Neil is huh. on the drum kit <laughs> and Stuart's kind of messing around with some horns and such. And they're just, just having a jam. That's a music career right there. That's a nice, yeah. well-rounded music career. Um, yeah. So I, I, while I don't, I can't quite grasp the gravity, the gravity of that moment, even though I know how great YYZ is, I can understand because in my own experience, watching the Grammys in 2000, must've been 2008. Um, right. And I read that Malignant Narcissism was up for best rock instrumental. And here oh, no I am, kidding. and I'm like, well, it's probably the first time I ever watched the Grammys. I'm like, well, of course it's going to win. I mean, what's, well, who else is writing something like Malignant Narcissism? And it right. lost to Bruce Springsteen. And at the time, 2008, I was, you know, 16 or something. I, right. had, I had never heard of Bruce Springsteen. And right. uh, it, they didn't air it, of course, but I remember my dad said, no, nah, they lost to Bruce Springsteen. I said, who? Yeah. And he's just like, eh, yeah, some some guy, <laughs> some rock artist. Yeah. So now every time I hear of Bruce Springsteen or somebody talk about Bruce Springsteen, I have this like inner fire <laughs> inside of me, even though I still really don't know his music that well. Um, and I know yeah. he's like super American and all that, but, uh, you know, I don't know if your track well, is better than Malignant Narcissism. I, despite his being unbelievably popular, I'm not a big fan of groups that have more people on stage than they have road crew. <laughs> and a tie-in there is part of, yeah, I hope I have this correct, but as I understand it, and maybe, maybe I've got my years wrong, where was Springsteen inducted the same year as Rush, or was that the same year as Kiss? Um, was Kiss, Kiss was before Rush, right? Yeah, Kiss was one year prior to Rush. And I think Springsteen was the same year as Kiss. I won't pretend to know because I don't, but my gut says they were the same year as Rush, I think. I don't know. I, I really they, don't okay. know. Well, um, one thing I've heard about the, the induction of the, the E Street Band into the Rock Hall is that every person from E Street Band gave a long, <laughs> long speech. Yeah. And I guess that made that particular ceremony just go on and on <laughs> and on forever to the point where, you know, just other speeches were far more succinct because yeah. everyone was so exhausted. You got to imagine that the people that work at that venue 
must know Alex Lifeson's name now, regardless of what kind of music they listen to. Like every Absolutely. every waiter and uh, what yo? So hold on one sec. What year did Kiss? Yeah. Uh, we're looking for uh, when they got in the Rock Hall, Kiss, and also Bruce Springsteen, if you could. We have our uh, research guy in-house today. I love that. <laughs> He's going to find us the info. Um, he, needs, he needs to show you that Xanadu movie poster so you can see some owl appreciation. <laughs> what was I just saying? Uh, oh, you got to imagine every waiter at that venue... Or every guy that oh, yeah. mops the floor after the show must really like Alex Lifeson <laughs> after yeah, years yeah. of those you know, long the, speeches. Definitely. The moment that sold that for me, because I was enjoying it, but when he goes blah, 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 and then is on the phone, <laughs> blah, 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 that's the best. Uh, Donna Halper was on the show and told us about what it was like being there, um, which yeah. I didn't know she was there until she was on the show. It was a really nice treat. All right, we got two more to go on pictures here. Um, let's talk a little more about Red Barchetta and save the big guy for last. Uh, I think I talk a lot about fade outs and by that, I mean, I poop on fade outs a lot. They're not my favorite thing. I will let fade outs slide and I will say fade outs are appropriate in very few instances. And I think this is one. I like the fade out on Red Barchetta, not to say the ending we hear live isn't cool, but I under what I'm saying is I understand why the fade out is is appropriate in this sense. This also goes for the right. record for the records. Yeah, it fits it thematically, mm-hmm. it's more cinematic, and equally, it's very complete. It doesn't it doesn't have that. I know what you're talking about. You've said it before on previous episodes where you're just feeling the groove of the song. You're hearing elements. They're like, well, I want to hear more of that, but yet it's being faded out. This almost you you you've um you've had the appetizer, the meal, and the dessert, and you're just just enjoying that last bite of dessert as it fades out. So it's really a perfect perfect composition that way. I what, think that's a great analogy for this track. There is a beginning, a middle, and an end to it, isn't there? Um, and and you get this image of you you get back to your uncle's farm. It's dark. He's got a bonfire going. Park the barchetta. You sit down, you know, you open a beer and like everything's fine. It's nice and quiet again. And it just all, everything just settles back down. It's, it's metaphor. It's a metaphor for his heart rate. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. You've heard, absolutely. You've heard that the song itself was inspired by a short story in Road and Track magazine, right? Um, I did, I did know that, but I, I forgot all about it. I read that somewhere. So tell me about it. Yeah. Well, it's even credited on the album on the liner notes. Yeah, the name of the the name of the um, short story is "A Nice Morning Drive," and it's extremely easy to find online. And there are some differences between the story "A Nice Morning Drive" and the song "Red Barchetta," but thematically they're the same. It's interesting. Have you ever read Anthem? The no, Amrath? no, no, no. Oh, yeah. I'm, re- I'm reading I mean, about it, but I haven't read it. <laughs> yeah, it's so short. It's a really thin oh, okay. novel. And it's extremely interesting to read, and I, you would love reading it. And it's interesting. What's interesting about A Nice Morning Drive and Anthem, which are both very short reads, I'm not 
particularly big on reading myself. But what's interesting about those is how Neil takes those storylines and uses the base elements and creates his own story. It's really, really, yeah. really interesting. Yeah, like album. keeps themes, keeps this sort of uh, the ambiance of what's happening in a story, but creates his own narrative. Yes. Really, Absolutely. really nice. I think Red Barchetta is one of compositionally just a piece of a huge chunk of gold from a music standpoint in general. Um, Absolutely. There's. I don't know if, the, you know, if I had to give five songs to represent the career to a new listener and I knew that listener would like it, Red Barchetta would absolutely be on that list because it does something that I don't think many other bands were doing um, from a from a compositional point of view. And also, I mean, performance-wise, too, the execution was perfect. They knocked it out of the park. Uh, and, and also a song that takes on a new life live. And... and it, I'm realizing I'm saying that about every freaking track on this album, but maybe that's just right. maybe that's just because, like we said, they sound so much different than any other record. Maybe just these tracks on this album sound so different that when they play them live, yeah, they they sound like something else, just naturally, you know. Yeah, yeah. Well, equally, I think that the songs were so popular and so played on the radio. And so listened to by the masses and especially the you know, the fan base that by the time they got to playing them live, two things happened. Number one, they want to play them a lot live. Yeah. Where there's there's never a concert that goes without Tom Sawyer. Even a brief appearance on any show, it's Tom Sawyer. So I think that a lot of those changes are put there for the purpose of have, giving it a fresh sound for both the listener and themselves. All right, I've got them right here. Ready? This is our, our research yep. intern, is, is what I'm calling him today. Our research intern has, uh, in 2013, Rush was inducted, inducted into the Hall of Fame, correct? Uh, that was also yep. this, the year for Hart, uh, Quincy Jones, Albert King, Randy Newman. Donna Summer. Kiss was inducted in 2014. Oh, gotcha. And Bruce Springsteen was was with Kiss. According to Research Intern, (laughs) I say that because if he's wrong, it's his fault. But I I do trust him. Springsteen was was inducted in 1999. No, no, Bruce, that's true. The E Street Band, which is the same thing as Bruce Springsteen, Uh was... Bruce was inducted on his own in 99. Oh, his band and, got in. Yeah, oh, what kind of garbage band, is that? <laughs> exactly. And that is like 40 members of this band. It's ridiculous. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. And I'm not, don't get me wrong. Every woman on the face of the planet comes to Bruce's major defense, and I respect that. That's fine. That's great. But... Okay, so again, this this speaks to my incredible lack of knowledge in the classic rock department. But um, no, that makes sense to me. And I'm you know years ago I knew that those were two different things, or that his his band was the E Street Band. But um, yeah, yeah, I still hate his guts for beating out malignant narcissism. But it's all good. (laughs) Maybe I'll be over it. I'll get over it someday. All right, so Tommy Boy. 
back to the back to the, the primary point that sent us down that trail. Wait until you hear that song that beat out YYZ. It yeah. Be, what? <laughs> oh, I'll, uh, well, I'll I'll tweet the link if you can send it to me because that would be, I, it would I be interesting to hear and kind of compare it to YYZ. Yeah. yeah, it's shocking. In fact, I read a quote from Sting about this song that he loathed it so much. A, he didn't play on it. He just, I'm not playing on that. B, he literally took it at one point, the tape, and buried it. <laughs> took it outside the studio and buried Even it. Even Sting now, didn't like it. Right. And Stuart weighed in to say, well, Andy played all the bass, all the guitars, et cetera, because no one else would. I played drums on it because there was no one else to play drums. Wow. So this song is not good. And YYZ deserved a major win. Uh, yeah. And I think what we're speaking to here is some sort of uh, hypocrisy um, it, within the Grammy system, which we're all aware of. Right. You know, yeah. Um, but anyway, um, if I could go back in time and re-listen to the Rush catalog, you know, it re-experience my first time listening to the Rush catalog. I would listen to Moving Pictures and Permanent Waves and mo- just those two. I would listen to Permanent Waves and Moving Pictures last. I would know every track on Roll the Bones. I would know how to sing every line on Test for Echo. I would know every hit on Caress of Steel before I listened to Moving Pictures. Because I, as a fan now, Moving Pictures might be the album I listen to the least because I I, I beat it to death so hard. You know, I know them right. so well that it's there's nothing new for me anymore. And, and that's a that's a mean statement. Like, of course, there are new things for me when I listen to the record. Um, sure. But I wish I had the experience of hearing Tom Sawyer and going, oh, what's this new thing? Do you know what I mean? Because th- this yeah. was essentially the first thing I got to listen to uh, and the only thing I listened to for a while. So when I hear Tom Sawyer start, I go, ugh. But it's, sure, so sure. it's hard for me to do this. And we're doing it now. I, I mean, we're talking about what's so great about these tracks. And I'm not discounting right. that at all. Um, so this week I listened to Tom Sawyer and I think, I don't know if there's any other song and I definitely think there's, there's no other Rush song that has the same format as no, Tom it's, it's Sawyer. Point. It's true. And one thing to keep in mind with that is the fact that it was a, it was a co-written song. Yep. There was, I've got a note, it was co-written by Pai Dubois mm-hmm. of Max Webster. And I've got an interesting note right here. Let me find it because I always knew that. But what I didn't realize was that later, Pi would co-write yes. along with Neil for Force Ten. Yep. And between Sun and Moon. Yep. What's the uh, other one? And and Test for Echo. I think. So when you look I at think a song he like also did Sun and Moon and such. You know, there's you definitely can feel that someone else has uh, thrown a couple of ingredients into, yeah. the, into the soup, so to speak. Well, Between Sun and Moon was also based on a, a poem, I think, called Between the Sun and the Moon or something like that. Um, so there's yeah. a lot of things in thrown into that pot. Um, yeah. I Now, just to speak on about Pi for just a, a tiny second, I read that he also co-wrote Speed of Love, which has become oh, one of my ultimate favorite tracks. I think it's yeah, unlike anything else they've done. 
and yeah, uh, I desperately tried to get that man on Rushcast because I wanted to talk to him. Oh, and and awesome. you know, I I I'm sure he saw my emails and things, but I'm sure he thought, yeah, go on and talk about Tom Sawyer for an hour. Like I I wanted to talk about the speed of love for an hour. Um, so yeah. I don't know if we'll ever have him. It'd be great to talk to him, but. We could uh, also talk about Battlescar. Are you familiar with that? No. Yeah, Max Webster and Rush um, put all their equipment in one studio and conspired on a song by a Max Webster song called Battlescar. Okay. So when you're hearing that song, it's actually Alex, Getty, Neil, and the members of Max Webster all as one unit Wh- on which, that song. Which song? It's called Battle Scar, and wow, it's a song wow. from right from right around that era, Interesting. around 1980. Yep. Wow, that's really weird. I mean, there's so, there's so much to know about this stuff. I learn something every week. So, did we know to the the extent to which he wrote Tom Sawyer? What did he contribute? I do not. Yeah, you know, um, what I know of it from what I read was that Pie had written a a poem about a lawyer and the name of the song, the name of the poem was something like uh, something about a warrior or something. And so basically Neil took that concept and pushed it a bit into the Tom Sawyer sort of theme. If I think that makes sense. Uh Uh-huh. Um, I like. So, go ahead. Are you done, Ron? I am. Oh, I didn't want to. Inter- <laughs> I didn't want to interrupt you. That's no, right. no. In that place, I was trying not to interrupt you. Uh, gosh, we're all so polite. Listen to us. That's how a podcast should be. You know what I mean? No. <laughs> right. I I just think uh, this week I'm 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 realizing this song is unlike any other musical composition form wise when you go to music school for six years or whatever you realize that form is a very very important thing and it took me maybe three of those the first three of those years to stop shrugging it off like my professors would be like form is so damn important and we'd be like nah like it doesn't matter but it really is like whether you know music theory or not and whether you realize it or not when you're listening to music you are very conscious of form um if form changes it's very easy to notice so for this song we we talk about form and tom sawyer we essentially get verse chorus and then this epic bridge and now the bridge is normally like the throwaway like oh this part will be a little different then we'll get back to the juicy stuff the bridge is the juiciest part of this song and that's a very different thing so we get verse chorus bridge and then pretty much like verse chorus out it's a it's a different thing than we're used to. Yeah. Really, really cool. And these are the, the more subtle ways that Rush is, re, or I should say, was reinventing the game, in my opinion. They took what these older bands were doing, like we go back to some of these older albums in the album series, and or I should say younger albums, and we talk about the prog influences. This is what they're doing to push even further past that like they let's take those prog ideas and how can we make these things happen in a radio setting and i don't think anybody else could do that 
or or right. has done Absolutely. that. No, I agree. Most definitely. And back to a point you made prior in relation to moving pictures compared to the catalog uh, from a, a super fan, so to speak, point of view, that it would be one of the last albums you would listen to now just because you've absorbed the material so substantially. Mm-hmm. I will say that I would predict that of all of these, the series, album by album, podcasts, that this one would be the most listened to <laughs> if people were just going through looking for, oh, there's the moving pictures. I want to listen to that one. And a close second would be 2112. Now, that's just a guess. I really don't know, though, because podcast listeners, maybe there's a certain age range there. And like yourself, there is, there is certainly a certain age range of Rush fans who have a greater appreciation for the newer stuff. Yeah, it, and it's you're 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 hitting the nail right in the head uh, in a lot of ways, Ron. Because you're right, and I think for whatever reason, <laughs> I know the reason, but Rushcast attracts a lot of people that want to hear about the the more obscure stuff. But um, right. I had the same thought. I thought when we're done with this album series, I'm going to get to go back and look at the numbers, and that's going to be awesome because I'm going to. It's essentially yeah, cool. It's essentially a poll to see, you know, which album did you want to hear about the most on the podcast? And I thought, I think the same thing. I think Moving Pictures will be the the biggest. Uh, but you're right in that a lot of my listeners are my age. And that's why when I opened up the doors to uh, people like you coming on to talk about an album, that's why Clockwork Angels, Snakes and Arrows, and Vapor Trails filled up the fastest. <laughs> Yeah, you know? that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. Also, I mean, those so three albums you, also have the widest array of fans because they're the newest. But, um, And I'll say this, Ron. While you might be right that this episode will have the most downloads, it'll have the second most downloads because you're never going to be Ed Stenger's episode. <laughs> Ed Stenger's right? ro- no rolling doubt. around with like 3,700 downloads right now or something like that. Wow. No, that isn't, that isn't one of the... Um, that's the um, Rush is a Band website owner. Correct? That's right. Yep. So he did one and a while ago, but he also did you. 20... About his original. No. Oh, gotcha. Yeah, yeah. He did yeah. 2112, yeah, and it's absolutely killing. <laughs> no kidding. That's great. That was an excellent episode. Yeah, he's great. I, I especially loved his first Rush. That was among my top three Rush casts that yeah. I enjoyed it's... his episode. It's cool to kind of look inside of that world of these guys that host websites like that. I, I, I would love to have the guys from Power Windows and Cygnus as well. I've reached out. A, I think that I've reached awesome. out a couple times. Maybe after the album series, we can make that happen. Yeah, that'd be cool. Uh, Ron, is there, are there any other like bits of research or anything like that that you wanted to bring up about moving pictures? Couple, couple of brief tidbits. Uh-huh. The album cover. The album cover, as you're very aware, is a um, clever triple entendre that incorporates uh, basically furniture movers moving, you know, carrying pictures. And the original concept that Hugh Syme had, who, by the way, not only is the creator of the album artwork, he also plays synthesizer on Witch Hunt. Mm. But... Hugh's original concept was that the movers would be carrying, moving these paintings 
pictures out of a museum that had closed. In other words, it's closed its doors, which I like that concept because that gives even greater weight to why are these, why are the onlookers so moved by what they're seeing? And so if you look at it from that perspective, it's not merely the artwork itself that's caused them, you know, one person's jaws dropped, another has literally burst into tears and dropped the groceries there on the stair steps. You know, now it's more related to, oh my gosh, can you believe they've closed this museum? You know, this is terrible. And then finally, the third portion of the triple entendre being when you turn the record over, the back cover showing that they're actually filming a movie. It's actually a movie set. And so sort of a moving picture. So I love that album cover. The other thing about it, you have talked on prior Rush casts about you love an album cover that pops. And one thing that does pop about this, the border of the album cover, there's a solid black border and the Rush logo and album title are black, or excuse me, red against that black border, and that really does pop. Yeah, I, I think borders, border, it, borders in general yeah. are, are. I think Rush is used very well. Like, look at look at signals. That that's not right. just a picture. There's like a, a thick border around that. Um, right. That that well, that the suit. Other thing about, yeah, I'm with you. The other thing about moving pictures having a, a border like that. If you look at that border, almost like as a mat then literally the album cover itself becomes a picture. In other words, picture, imagine that image matted and framed. So now it literally is itself a picture. So if you took the album cover of moving pictures, took it to a framer, had them mat it and board it, it would look like this one picture has been matted several times over because oh, yeah. the album <laughs> cover itself has a mat incorporated. So that's kind of interesting to think about. Yeah, that that's a an but, aspect I hadn't considered. That's really neat. Have you done that? Piece of, no, I have not, but I've seen it done. I have seen it done. Now, the other piece is that from Hugh's point of view, part of the reason for choosing or a thing he liked about that location, which is the, um, oh, what in the heck is it? The Ontario Legislative Building in Toronto? Yep. One thing he liked about that was that of course, there's three paintings. There's also three pillars, three arches, and three candlesticks. <laughs> so he liked that whole theme of threes. Yeah, which per, which per. does carry through. Uh, I mean, not not that you insisted or that you implied it didn't, um, but we see it in power windows. I think there are three TVs in power windows. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Obviously, yeah. hold your fire. Yeah, that's <laughs> hold your fire's got Excellent three observations. Right. Right. Um, if and you know this might sound stupid, but I'm just realizing this at this instant. Aren't ninety percent of the die or the dice in um, Roll the Bones aren't they threes? Oh, interesting. I don't know. I've never looked. I've never looked at it from. I know. From that perspective. Yeah, I know. That's like most of them are one number, and I believe it. I believe they're threes, and that would make sense. Why? Uh, that's funny. Somebody's somebody's Definitely. laughing at me right now. Because uh, I just realized that, but uh, these are cool. Th- I love when things are hidden. 
like that for us to find, you know, literally 30 years later. Right. Right. Yeah. And it was, uh, that book is really great. Um, Hugh Symes, Art of Rush, mm-hmm. really, really great. Um, another thing of interest, it was yet another La Studio album, which I'm not sure. I think everything from 2112 all the way through and including counterparts was recorded at La Studio. And the majority of those with um, Terry Brown, one, as a drummer, one thing that's extremely interesting is that despite Tama and Ludwig being, you know, sponsors of Neil. Neil used a Slingerland snare that was his baby, his go-to snare, both live and in studio, for every record at La Studio. So everything from 2112 to Counterparts, it's all the same snare drum, live and in studio. So I can't imagine how amazing it would be just to see that snare drum that has that history. Yeah, you know, I thought about this the other day is as one of my uh, classmates, that uh, two of my classmates who were drummers, jazz drummers, were talking about, uh, I think it was Buddy or the symbol. So-and-so has the symbols that Max Roach used to play on or something like that. And I said, is that how oh, it works cool. in the drum yeah. world? Like for upright basses, you know, basses are hundreds and hundreds of years old sometimes. So you can own a famous bass player's old bass. Uh Right. And I said, is that what it's like for drummers? It's like the cymbals get passed down. And they said, yeah, sometimes, you know, sometimes it's it's drums. But it's funny to think about how, like, every instrument these guys played exists somewhere. Somebody right now owns Geddy Lee's Steinberger that he that he played. Right. You know. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And many of the kits. Well, one thing I want to say about that, that snare is it was a Slingerland snare. So for him to be playing a Slingerland snare against Tama's um endorsement a slinger slingland snare against ludwig's endorsement which ludwig was a juggernaut back then oh yeah they they yeah they've been circumvented by dw now who obviously is neil's oh that's right endorsement now yep but um the other thing about those all those kits were sans slingland snare were awarded in contests one and most of them related to uh, Modern Drummer magazine contest. One was a written, a writing contest. The other one was a performance contest, solo. And one interesting thing about that solo is the, the winning solo and the runners-up, because there were prizes for runners-up as well, is you can hear a lot of influence of Neil's Pieces of Eight from the winning solo. It's very interesting to me to listen to those things. You can find all of that on YouTube. The um, you know the solos that the solo that won Neil's kit, etc. And um, it's just very interesting to hear how Neil's post that contest, how his solo performance live evolved to include more of the marimba type sounds and and all that sort of percussion added into as an element of the solo. And you're familiar with the uh, Pieces of Eight, correct? No. Oh, that's that whole section. There's a... Yeah, there's, it's a whole section that... Um, the part that, during the solo, that goes... Yeah, that is 
a part of a whole Neil Peart composition called Pieces of Eight. Okay. And it's a theme that reappears with each solo. Correct. Huh. Yep. You know, um, this reminds me, the other day I'm eating lunch again with a bunch of jazz drummers. It's always funny to bring up Neil Peart to jazz drummers because they've all got supremely uh, diverse views or opinions. But um, one of them said, he did this thing. He knew, like, I'm going to say it ignorantly, but he knew what the name of it was and he knew all the specs and stuff. He said... You know, he did that thing in Canada uh, for the hockey, you know, for the NHL or the Hockey yeah. Hall of Fame or whatever yeah. it was. And I knew exactly what he was talking about, but I wanted to hear him say it to the the rest of the group. And he, and he had this whole kit done up with like all the NHL logos on it. And he uh, he did the theme song that they play at every hockey game up there. And I said, yeah, it's like, and the dude started laughing because it is kind of a cheesy, you know, sports center kind of right. song, but it, right. it's perfect for what they need, you know? Yeah. And I yeah. love that kit. Yeah, I like it. Something about my, I like... like it's that drum set. I do not like that. You don't NHL like it? Drum set. No. Is it because no, of the logos? Like yes. <laughs> well, what yes. about, like, R30, R40 kit, which had the Rush oh, I logos? Like, <laughs> I like the R40. I'm not a big fan of the R30 kit, and I'll tell you why. Because I don't like the Starman in Silver Sparkle on the front of the bass drums. Yeah, okay. Uh, and I didn't think it was sized, like, sized correctly either. I thought it was too small for right. the, uh, What was our 40s thing? Uh, bass drum head. Uh, I, don't, I don't really remember. I've, I'm better at le- remembering right now what I didn't like. Uh, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I yeah. can't remember what the R41 yeah. looked like. But um, yeah, I'm not certain. I know that the R30 and R40 are very similar. Yes, but that the R30, I didn't like it primarily just because of the sparkly Starman and such. But um, don't get me wrong, I love the R30 kit compared to the NHL kit. Yeah, I can. And I, I can even agree. had an opportunity at a Nam show. I even saw the oh, you were a Nam kit. Yeah, and I saw that kit in person. Man, it's it's not cool. Oh, that man. kid is not cool. Well, I, I yeah. can I can agree with the logos because there's a bit like I have a this like weird thing in my brain. I'm very like into branding. You know what I mean? Especially with sports teams. Like I like to see how teams decide they're gonna they're gonna brand their product. And seeing them all thrown onto one thing, it's kind of like the guy that's got the old jean jacket with every NBA franchise on it. You know, um, half of them don't exist anymore. Uh, But something about my aesthetic tastes went white, like maybe two or three years ago. So suddenly it used to be black. Like everything had to be black. My guitars had to be glossy black. My cars were all, you know, growing up, my cars were always going to be black. Everything I wore was black. Uh, but recently I've been like, you know, white, not like an off white, not a cream. I'm talking like just straight white is really sharp well, then, on, especially on guitars. Yeah, and, that, you would love the NHL kit. That's for sure. I do that. At that part of the kit. I really dig. Cause like, it's not often you see Neil just go white, you know? Right. Uh, that's true. Yeah. The closest he came was power windows with the, um, 
with that white with a hint of like pink. Yeah, it was a hint of pink. A, just a dash of pink in there. But yeah. again, that's not white. That's a, that's what I'm saying. Like the no. the purest form of white is just a really nice aesthetic. Uh, like like I see these new Camaros rolling around, and when I see one that's white with like a black racing stripe on it, I'm like, mm, yeah, <laughs> that's cool. Well, I'll tell you, you're you're wise because white is a heck of a lot easier, ironically, to keep clean. Yeah, doesn't look, <laughs> nothing looks better. That's true. It only stays clean for about ten seconds. Then you got to wash it again. I'll let you know if that's true once I own my first Camaro. That would be good. <laughs> I look forward to that. Definitely. Ron Reed is fun and talking ta- talking moving pictures and Camaros and can uh, Canadian drum sets with you. You should definitely hold out for a red barchetta, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, are they still floating around? Can you? Do people still own them? I don't know, honestly. Um, I'm more of a Jeep guy than a car guy. I noticed your uh, your Gmail picture is a, a Jeep. Yeah, I'm a Wrangler guy. <laughs> Do you, uh, all right, this well, I love being on the podcast with you very much. Uh, I love having you on, man. We, we got a nice, fat, juicy episode, too. So thank you so much. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. We love having you here. We'll see you next week for Signals. <laughs>